You may have noticed the flags when you pulled up this morning. They're kind of hard to miss. They're beautiful. And we put those out a couple times a year. And as you may be aware, they are out this morning because tomorrow is Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day that is set aside to remember the men and women who have given their lives in military service to this country. And even this morning, as we sit here in freedom, gathered to worship our Lord, we are reaping the benefits of their sacrifice. And I think it is good for us to pause and to remember them, to recognize their sacrifice, and to praise the Lord, even as we also remember and pray for their families who have been left behind. See, these are men and women who gave their lives to a cause that was bigger than themselves. These are men and women who went into battle because of their love for family and for country. See, someone does not just run into harm like that unless there is a purpose, unless there is a a belief, a reason, a truth that is driving them. On January 20th, 1961, in his inaugural address, John F. Kennedy famously called the country to rally together and to have the same self-sacrificial mindset of those who have given their lives in battle. You probably know the, the statement, what he said there. He said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It was a powerful statement. At the height of the Cold War. And it really became kind of a rallying cry. A call to action. Truth that leads to action. See, as we come to our passage this morning, it is also a call to action. The author of Hebrews, as we come to to Hebrews 10.19, the author of Hebrews has spent nine and a half chapters unfolding the details of the gospel. And now, in light of those details, he calls his audience to action. Because this is true, this is how you must respond. So this morning... As we work our way through this passage, we will see the gospel truth, and then we'll see a gospel response. Jesus' finished work is the foundation and the motivation for our response to the gospel. The first thing we see this morning is the gospel truth. The gospel truth. Verse 19 starts with this word, Therefore, brethren... Therefore, based on everything that the author of Hebrews has said up to this point, based on the superiority of Jesus Christ, based specifically, based specifically on Jesus Christ as our sacrifice, the effectiveness of his blood, based on the fact that our sins have been forgiven in Christ alone, based on all of this, on everything that we have in Christ, 
Therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Having boldness. That word boldness there, it's a word that we are familiar with. We know what boldness is. But the idea here is not just a bold action. It's the idea of authorization. It's the idea of having a right to be there. For instance... This is not just the boldness to take action. This is more of the boldness with which you enter your own house. I mean, just think about it. As you walk into your house, you get home from church today, you're going to walk into your house. Are you going to pause to think, should I really be doing this? Are you going to pause to think, maybe I should knock first? No, why? Because you belong there. Because it's your house. Because you have a right to be there. You are authorized. I don't think we often think of boldness in those terms. The boldness within I walk into my house. I don't have bold. I just walk in. But that is boldness. You don't think about it. You just do it. You take action. Because you have a right to be there. It's the same thing with your place of work. You just walk in. You go to your desk. You sit down. You have a right to be there. You don't feel uncomfortable. There's no guilt there. There's no feeling of being out of place. I am authorized to be here. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Brethren, you have a boldness to enter the holiest. You are authorized to be there. You have a right in Christ to be in the very presence of God. This is where you belong. You're not imposing when you come to the throne of grace and to the holiest of holies, to the very presence of God himself. In fact, going on in Hebrews, he will talk a little bit how being in the presence of God is a terrifying place to be, and yet it is not terrifying for those of us who are in Christ. We are authorized. And so we come boldly. It is our right. It is where we belong Boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You have authorization. It is more than just forgiveness, right? That's what we saw last week. In verses 11 to to 18, that we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are covered. And yet, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is not only have you been forgiven, but now you have a boldness and authorization It is one thing to be pardoned. It is another thing to be adopted. You're not just pardoned. You're not just forgiven. You are adopted. Even as Romans 8 talks about, to the very family of God, co-heirs with Christ by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Our boldness is a direct result of our access. The man who has been pardoned has appreciation. But the man who has been pardoned and adopted has a relationship. 
They have a right and authorization. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't not, you're not just forgiven. It's not that God just forgave you and then kind of went on and, all right, I'll, I'll see you in a couple of years when you get here to heaven. He forgave you. And then he adopted you. He placed you in his family. You have a right to be in his presence. In Christ alone, a boldness to enter the holiest, the very presence of God himself. And yet notice this last part. This is important. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, because you have been better than everybody else. Boldness to enter the holiest because you have been so good in your church attendance. Because you have given so much money to church. It doesn't say any of those things. What is it that gives us boldness, authorization to walk into the very presence of God in Christ? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood that covers, away, that covers my sin, the blood that, as the author of Hebrews has said earlier, puts away sin. The blood that cleanses. I have access because Jesus has died for me. I have access because His blood has covered my sin. Has paid my penalty. Therefore, brother, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. The idea there of new probably ties back to the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, which could not Take us into the holiest. The old covenant which was not effective as we saw. The old covenant which was just a shadow of the things to come. But now we comes the new. As we see in Jeremiah 31, even in Hebrews 8, 8 to 13, the new, which is effective in the blood of Jesus Christ, the living way. Do you remember how Earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews really pounds kind of on that. He sits there for a while. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Do you remember how he sits there and he rests on the idea that, that Jesus is an eternal high priest? After the order of Melchizedek, the importance tied to his eternality, because he is risen from the dead, we always have someone before the Father pleading for us. He's kind of coming back around to that idea here. We have a new covenant and a living Savior. The resurrection of Jesus, the eternal, the eternality of the promise giver stresses the eternality of the promises. Again, as we see in Psalm 110.4. This is not a, a, a way into the presence of God. The blood of Jesus, it is not something that will go away, something that will pass away, something that will be replaced. It is new and it is living. 
This new and living way which he consecrated for us. The idea there of, of consecrated is newly established. As I was thinking about this, my mind went to a song that we sing sometimes on Sunday mornings called Gaze on the Christ by Chris Anderson. There's a phrase in that psalm that always in that song that always kind of strikes me just because of the way it's worded. He says, Christ cut to God a trail. You remember that song that we sing? Gaze on the Christ, and Christ cut to God a trail. A newly established way. A new and living way through the blood of Jesus Christ. He consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. By his flesh we have access behind the veil. You may remember earlier as we were talking in the book of Hebrews about uh, the tabernacle and all of the, the things there in the tabernacle and how they all stand for something else. They all mean something. They point forward to Christ. You walk into the holy place and you have this furniture, but, but there's another room, the holiest of holies. And between the holy place and the holiest of holies, what is there? There's a curtain. There's a veil. And there was only one man who went past that veil once a year. And he could not go empty-handed. He had to go with the blood of bulls and goats. It points forward to a better time, to more access. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here, is that in Christ we have access behind that veil to the holiest of holies. I think for us, so far removed from that time, it's sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around how significant this idea of going behind the veil into the holiest of holies is. Right? We, we've known nothing else. By the grace of God, those of us who are in Christ for our entire lives, we have had access. And we rejoice in that. But there was a time when there was a veil. There was a time when it was limited. And in Christ, that veil is gone. We have access through a new and living way consecrated for us through the veil. That is His flesh. Our access behind the veil into the presence of God, the holiest of holies, is in His blood that was shed for us and His body that was broken. Does that remind you of something else that we do as a church? communion as we gather at that table, as a church as we take that drink and that bread and we remember, we consecrate, memorialize the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was shed. And why do we do that? Why is that so important? Because that is our hope. Because without that, there is no salvation. There is no access. There is no future. There is no hope. We have boldness by the blood. Consecrated through the veil in his flesh. It is all in Christ. 
his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. That's where our hope, our eternity lies. His blood that was spilt, his body. Also, we have a high priest over the house of God. This idea of a high priest is something that the author of Hebrews has really focused on in Hebrews 6 and 7. We have Hebrews 7.25 says, a high priest who is always making intercession for us, again, tying back to his eternality, the living way. We have a high priest over the house of God, God's people. So really what you see in these first few verses, verses 19, 20, and 21, is kind of a summation of the first nine and a half chapters. This is the gospel. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our way. Jesus is our high priest. Through him we have the forgiveness of sins. Through him we have access. Through him we have an advocate before the Father. We have all of this in Christ. This is everything the author of Hebrews has said. Jesus Christ is superior. He is better. His blood is effective. Your salvation is secure. Now you come to verses 22 through 25. And this is where we move from the gospel truth of Jesus as our sacrifice, Jesus as the way, Jesus as our high priest, to a gospel response. And it's important for us to start here in these first three verses because it is Jesus' finished work that is the foundation and motivation of our response. We respond the way we do in confidence and boldness because Jesus has finished his work, because he has risen, because he has been seated at the right hand of the Father. Our hope is his finished work. And so here we see a gospel response. And there's really three responses in here. And you'll see each of them start with the, the same two words, let us. In verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another. How do we respond to this gospel, to our sacrifice, the way, to our high priest? How do we respond to all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ? We draw near, we hold fast, and we consider one another. First look at that phrase, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The idea there is to approach. Because we have been given boldness, we draw near with boldness. Right? This only makes sense. This is the obvious application to verse 19. You have boldness to enter the holiest. So then what should I do? I should draw near. Right? I have authority to enter my house. It's hot outside. What should I do? I should go in my house. It's, it's so obvious. 
You have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have authorization to the very throne room of heaven in Christ. Therefore, what do I do? Draw near. Draw near. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance, confidence, the certainty that comes with faith. The idea there of a true heart is the idea of sincere. Draw near sincerely. Draw near convinced. Real. Not fake. Not just going through the motions to look good. But a real and convinced movement. We understand the idea of sincere, do we not? You know what a sincere apology is. I'm sure that we've all had someone do something to us and they come back to apologize and they won't look us in the eyes and they just say, I'm sorry. That's not sincere. That's not real. They are not convinced that what they have done is wrong. That's not a real apology. A sincere apology is someone who comes to you, someone who's been broken, who understands what they have been wrong. I am sorry. I know that I have hurt you. They are convinced that they were in the wrong. They are convinced that they have hurt you. They are convinced that this needs to be taken care of. That's the idea here. Draw near with a true heart. Draw near sincerely. Draw near convinced that you have a right to be there in Christ. Convinced that His blood is enough. That you have been forgiven. I think this is often where we fall short. We look at verse 19, we have boldness to enter the holiest. Yeah, that's good. But then it comes time to pray, to take our requests before the Father, or to open the Word of God, to speak authoritatively, to draw near. And we're kind of hesitant. There's a disconnect between what we believe and what we are really convinced is true when it comes time to take action. And the author of Hebrews is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, what you say you believe, act like you believe it. If you believe that you have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you do, then enter, then draw near, then approach sincerely, fully convinced, full assurance of faith, confidently, boldly, Why? Notice that word there, having our hearts. It's not because you might have your hearts, or eventually maybe. It's having. This is true. This has already happened. Why? Because our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why? Because you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right back to verse 19. Why? By the blood of Jesus. Sprinkled from an evil conscience. 
cleansed from the inside out. The idea of conscience has come up several times in verses 9, 14, and 10, 3. We have an evil. Um, Christ cleanses even to our conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. The idea there is the picture of the priests who would wash before approaching the tabernacle, before offering their sacrifices, before going anywhere near. And the author of Hebrews is saying, your conscience, your heart is clean on the inside, your hands are clean on the outside, there is nothing holding you back. So come boldly before the Father. So draw near. But secondly, verse 23, let us hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Again, do you see here the language that he is using to, to really get a hold of his audience and say, the things that you believe have real implications for how you act. He's used the language several times of boldly, full assurance of faith, without wavering, we see here. If this is true, it, apply, it has application to your action. So act like it. Draw near, hold fast, adhere firmly. The confession of our hope without wavering. If you are truly convinced and changed by the gospel, you will hold fast to the gospel. This is a statement on the perseverance, on perseverance in faith. Hold fast. This is a repeated warning from the author of Hebrews. Go back even, if you will, to Hebrews 3. Once again, another one of these warning passages here in Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verse 6. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. New verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. There is an expectation of perseverance. Hold fast. Do not waver. Cling to Christ. Cling to the confession of your hope, your faith. Do not waver. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Do you see that? Your confidence in faith is based on the faithfulness of your God. Because He is faithful, I can and must be faithful. Because He who promised is faithful. Do you believe that about God? Because if you believe that God is faithful, then there's no excuse for you to not be faithful. So draw near. 
Hold fast. In verse 24, and let us consider one another. Consider one another. The idea of consider is to think about, to meditate on. Meditate on this. Think about one another. But here's what's really shocking about this statement. Right? Because it's easy. We, we consider one another. We, we pray for one another. We think about that kind of stuff. But it doesn't just say, think about one another. Pray about one another. What is it that you are to consider about one another based on this passage? Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, because of the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. To stir up love and good works. Think about that. It doesn't say consider one another how you can love and, and, and do good works for one another. But think about how you can stir the soul of your brother and sister in Christ to then for them to go and to love and to do good works. What can I do to encourage them to be faithful? To stir up. To bring these things to life within them. A need, a desire to love and to do good works. Think about others in order to point them to Christ so that they can go and point others to Christ. What does that look like? Not just to think about one another, right? We know that there are needs in our body. Those who are dealing with death. Those who are dealing with other financial needs, things like that. We think about one another. We pray for one another. But what does it look like to not just think about how I can meet that need, but to consider how can I encourage them to encourage someone else? How can I love them in a way in which it will encourage them to love someone else? That takes a little bit more thinking. A little bit more considering. It is done in things like providing meals. Because when someone provides a meal for you in your time of need, when someone else is in a time of need, you remember how helpful that was. And that then stirs up in you. I can provide a meal. It is the ministry of presence. Showing up. And being an encouragement just to have someone there to listen. And so then when it comes around time for someone else, they are encouraged to do that. It is things like that. But it's more than just a one-time thing. Think about those who have had the most impact on you in your life. Those who have stirred up love and good works mostly in you. At least for me, 
It is those who I see faithfully and tirelessly doing those things. And it is their faithfulness over time, not a one-time act, that then encourages me in the Lord. I can do that. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Not forsaking. You see, if we're going to stir one another up to love and good works, we must be meeting together. You can't stir someone up to love and good works if you are not interacting with that person. I think it's important for us to back up here and to look at even the context of this whole passage. Remember the persecution that came with being associated with the church at this time. The very thing that was drawing these Hebrews back to the law, part of it was that Judaism was acceptable in Rome. They would not be persecuted for that. But Christianity was more French. To be a Christian, to be associated with the church, was to be inviting persecution. And so you have those who are starting to kind of back away. Those who are not drawing near. Those who are not holding fast. And because they are not drawing near, and because they are not holding fast, they are not gathering. They are starting to kind of back away from the church. And the author of Hebrews is here saying that all of this is connected together. Those who draw near and those who hold fast are those who consider one another. The forsaking of the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is a peek into the heart to see that they are not holding fast and drawing near. The gathering of the church is a direct response to the power of the gospel. We gather to worship the Lord and we gather to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. I don't know that in our day, at least here in America, it is as much of a fear of persecution that drives us away as it is just a unwillingness to do the hard work of going to church. It involves relationships. It involves interaction. It involves, at least it should involve, serving in some way. It involves awkward conversations. It involves going to bed early the night before so you can get up to go. It involves prioritizing it, setting your week around it. If you are going to do this, you are going to do it. The author of Hebrews is saying, whether it is persecution, whether it is laziness, whether it is just fear of people, whatever it is, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need it. It is a testimony of the gospel. It is a response to the gospel, to the power of the gospel. 
It is a part of drawing near. It is a part of holding fast. So do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhort one another. And that gets back to the idea that exhortation requires interaction. I cannot exhort a brother and sister in Christ who I'm not interacting with. And notice what the author of Hebrews says here. So much the more as you see the day approaching. Each day that goes by, we are getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And each day that goes by, and each day that we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we should all the more see the need to come together. See the need to exhort one another. To stir up love and good works in one another. We need each other. It is as we consider one another in order to stir up love and good works that we also encourage one another to hold fast and to draw near. Do you see how all three of these tie together? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider one another. And so as we close, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a gospel call to action. The gospel demands response. Not just a one-time response of faith, but a life of response. Of day in and day out, drawing near and holding fast and considering one another. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from your sins if you have placed your faith in Christ. You have been saved. So then what do I do? What does that look like? You draw near. You hold fast. And you consider one another, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves. Those first two, draw near and hold fast. How do I do that? Well, you know your Bible. You spend time in prayer. You're faithful in church. You're making disciples. Those are how you do that. Know what you believe. Cling to that. Cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Go boldly into his presence in prayer. Hold fast to the faith once delivered. I think it's that last one that's the hardest one for us because it's very practical. Consider one another. Know each other. Consider each other. And love each other well. Stir up love and service in one another. What would a church look like where we were considering one another? Not just to pray for one another, but to stir up love and good works, to exhort one another, to encourage each other to faithfulness. It's a very practical passage, and so I'm going to have some very practical application this morning. 
I think we would all, we recognize the authority of the word of God, so we would all see this passage as necessary. In fact, chances are, if you've been paying attention, you're probably somewhat convicted. I know I, we all know that we could do this better. So here's the challenge. I would encourage us all to pick one person. Pick one person. Maybe not your husband or your wife, right? That You should be doing that in your home already, but, but someone else. And maybe not someone who's comfortable or easy for you to pick, right? So if you're sitting over here, probably not someone over You know these people well. Pick someone on this side, right? Get to know the other side of church. But someone maybe that you're not as comfortable with, someone you don't know as well, pick them and ask yourself, what can I do to stir them to love and good works this week? To stir them. To, to, yes, pray for them. But to stir them to action, to love and to good works, to exhort them. Number one, you have to know them in order to know them. To consider them well, you have to know them well. So that would probably be the first step, is get to know that person if you don't know them already. But then as you get to know them, purposefully consider, how can I do this? What action can I take? What would it look like? Pick one person and commit to take action to do something this week. It doesn't have to be big. It can be something small. Sometimes it is the smallest little things that really kind of get our attention and drive us to love and to good works. It could be something very small. But do something for one another. And then next week, pick another person. And then the next week, another person. And the next week, another person. This is the first of June is this month, is this week, Wednesday. Commit to this month. I'm going to pick one person each week to get to know and to consider. Consider how I can stir them to love and to good works. And Lord willing, by the end of that month, it'll become somewhat of a habit. And then it'll become a lifestyle. When we have this gospel-formed mindset towards one another, we will be a church where the, gospel, where the power of the gospel radiates out with power. You see, we can't go out and make disciples out there if we're not loving one another in here. Be faithful in here. Love one another well. And the gospel will radiate out from this place. We will go each week not frustrated by what this person said or didn't do, but encouraged to go and make disciples. This is a mindset. It is a choice. It is a choice to see your brothers and sisters and not to think of that time that they cut in front of you at the water fountain. Not to think of that time that they didn't hold the door for you or when they didn't help you when it was clear that your hands were full. Right? It's easy for us to hold on to those things. But this is a mindset that says, I have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can get past that. So how can I love this person well? Yes, they're frustrating. And there are some of you that are very frustrating. <laughs> yes, this person gets under my skin. But how can I stir up love and good works in them? Setting aside all that petty stuff. 
How can I love them well? And that's really the beginning of discipleship. As we consider one another in this way, as we get to know one another in this way, as we serve one another in this way, then we come to care for one another in this way. And as we care for one another, then who knows what the Lord could do? So how do we respond rightly, live a life informed by the gospel, we draw near, we hold fast, and we consider one another to stir up love and good works?